It's a very beautiful thing for us to be able to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to uh, rejoice in these new babies, to rejoice and sing together uh, the glories of Jesus and what he has done for us. Uh, Man, Sunday is like no other day of the week. I hope you feel similarly as well. Uh, For those of you who are, uh, maybe it's your first time here because of the baby dedication, Uh, maybe you just haven't been in a while, Uh, we are in this series in the book of Romans, and we will be returning to it today. Uh, And what we're going to do is look at verses 26 through 32 of chapter 1. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles there. I'm just going to do a little bit of an introduction, give us a little bit of context for these verses before we read them and dive in. So in verses 18 through 32, which Duane last week covered 18 through 25, and then I'm covering the remainder here this morning, what Paul is really seeking to do is to demonstrate the unrighteousness of those who do not have the law of the Gentile. As we transition into chapter 2 in the coming weeks, we'll see how Paul begins to address the unrighteousness of those who have the law, the Jews. Uh, But here in these verses, Paul is addressing the unrighteousness of those who do not have the law. And last week, we saw how unrighteousness stems from idolatry, from man turning away from worshiping the one true God. And now as we pick up here in verse 26, we see Paul explaining what idolatry produces in the unbeliever, how it both corrupts their desires and their mind. And we see this connection in verse 26 when Paul says, for this reason God gave them up. What is the reason that he's talking about? He's pointing back to that sin of idolatry in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is the sin for which man is given up to more sin. The reason points back to idolatry. And so what Paul is doing here is he's showing us first that idolatry is the root cause, the root sin. And then he goes on, as we'll see here this morning, to show the effects of this sin in humanity. And so Paul's aim as he covers these verses is to show the distorted effects of sin, specifically idolatry, in unbelieving humanity. So let's now read the text. Verse 26 is where we'll begin. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Father, we understand uh, that your word often presents us with very difficult realities for us to accept. And this morning, as the sinfulness of unbelieving humanity and where we at one point used to be and maybe where some of us still are today becomes apparent to us, Lord, would you give us grace to come underneath your word, to submit to what your word has said and not to stand over it as judge. May it change us through the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. So Paul begins here to show how sin has corrupted humanity by first looking at how it has corrupted the desires of mankind. We see this in verses 26 and 27, which we'll read over again now. For this reason, again, for this idolatry, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So in showing the distorted effects of sin in humanity, Paul begins by speaking about the corruption of the unbeliever's desires and how God is involved in the process. And he speaks about the reality in this way. He says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So what does it mean that God gave them up? Paul is showing what God's response to man's idolatry is. Man's forsaking, worshiping God and rather serving created things. God's response is judgment. And this judgment comes in the form of releasing the unbeliever to indulge in more sin. He, in a sense, lets them go. Any guardrails that he had put in their lives in terms of their desires, he removes and allows them to indulge and their dishonorable passions and desires. And this is what God gives them up to. It says that he gave, up, that gave them up to dishonorable passions. He gave them up to the desires of their heart. God allowed them to express their hearts however they saw fit. He allowed their hearts to run free. Now, there are many ways uh, that dishonorable passions express themselves in unbelievers. But Paul goes on to show specifically how unrestrained desires distort human sexuality. And it should go without saying that when our desires are left unchecked, we distort our sexuality in many different ways. Mankind often rejects God's mandate for sexual relations only in the context of marriage. Scripture talks about this, and when it talks about this, it calls it fornication. And it comes in many different forms as Scripture addresses it. Humanity often also regularly disregards their marital vows and seeks sexual experiences with someone other than their spouse. Scripture speaks very clearly about this as well. It's called adultery. 
going outside of your marriage vows. Now these are biblical distortions of human sexuality that are definitely a part of the equation, but these are not what Paul emphasized here. At this point, Paul does not address these distortions of human, human sexuality. Rather, he specifically addresses homosexuality and activity. And the reason why Paul isolates homosexuality at this point is because it is the most obvious distortion of human sexuality to those who don't have the law. So if you think about this with me for a minute, uh, if you were never told that it was wrong to cheat on your spouse or to have sex before marriage, what, what would tell you that it's wrong? You, you wouldn't know. You're biologically, uh, you're biologically compatible. Men and women are biologically compatible by nature, right? And so without the presence of a law, you wouldn't immediately know that those things are not right. Now what homosexual activity does is it goes against the law of nature and makes clear to those Gentiles who don't have the law that they are indeed sinful and at odds with God. The language that Paul uses to describe homosexuality makes this reality clear that it's the most obvious distortion of human sexuality. He says women exchange natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. Men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Notice where the emphasis lies here. It lies on the exchange of natural sexual relations with those that are contrary to nature. In addressing the Gentile, Paul does not appeal to the law of God to say that you are sinful. He's appealing to the natural order of the way God created us. The phrase contrary to nature communicates that those who are participating in homosexual activity are inverting the order of nature regarding sexuality. That God didn't create us to function in that way. In other words, homosexual activity is wrong not only because it breaks God's law, but because it distorts God's design and intention for humanity and their sexuality. God designed sexual activity to take place between one man and one woman in the context of a marital relationship. And homosexuality distorts this design by following dishonorable passions and fulfilling them with members of the same sex. Again, let's not lose sight of what Paul is aiming to do here. He's establishing the unrighteousness of those who do not have the law and how their desires have been distorted by their idolatry. Paul is showing us that homosexual activity is a sign both of mankind's sin-sick condition as well as God's judgment for idolatry. Now as we look at these verses and as we consider them, we need to ask two questions. The first is this. How should these verses influence the way we interact with unbelievers who are living in homosexual sin? I'm assuming that uh, by now, in terms of our culture, most people, if I were to ask you to raise your hand if you know somebody who is homosexual or lives that way, you would probably raise your hand. So how do these verses influence the way we engage with them? 
I think that we need to first acknowledge an internal struggle that we have as Christians. And the internal struggle is this, that on the one hand, we want to maintain what the scripture says about the seriousness of homosexual activity, with on the other hand, the command to be a gospel light to those who are enslaved by it. And these things are often conflicting within us. On the one hand, we uphold the seriousness with which Scripture speaks about homosexuality, but then this leads us into having a hostile attitude towards those who live that way. You see that in the church. Maybe you feel that way yourself. Well, they're just disgusting. They're just despicable, right? Do all this stuff that's contrary to nature, as Paul says. I don't want to have anything to do with them. By maintaining the seriousness with which Scripture speaks about it, it often produces within us a hostile mentality towards them. While on the other hand, we are tempted to soften the seriousness with which Scripture speaks about homosexuality in order to reach them. But then what happens in that case? Well, most often, this lessening or softening of the seriousness leads not to reaching them with the gospel, but simply leads to an acceptance and affirmation of the way they live their lives. And we see that in culture and in the church as well, do we not? But the reality is that both of these things must come together, and they are meant to come together. That we do not have to forsake the seriousness with which Scripture talks about homosexuality in order to reach those who are enslaved by it. No, both of these things work together. And what these verses should do is awaken us to the danger that those are in who live this way. And as we are awakened, we should feel compassion for them. A compassion that leads to speaking the truth in love to them. Seeking to take the gospel message to them that they might be delivered from their sin. This is what these verses should communicate to us as Christians. That we need to be understanding the seriousness of this sin, but also that we are called to engage. And it should create and compel within us the desire to do that. So this is the first question, and the second is this. How should you receive this text if you have homosexual desires and act upon them? Now, I'm not naive enough to think that that's not a possibility in this room. That people here, some here, may have those desires and may even act on them regularly or from time to time. So what do these verses say to you if you find yourself in that place today? What they say to you is this. You ought to receive these verses as a gracious warning from God about your sin and the judgment that will come upon you for it. Think about it with me. You're here at church today to hear this message. You could be at home just sitting there content in your sin, but instead God woke you up and brought you here to hear this message. Well, I think that's an action of grace on God's part to allow you to hear what he's saying and to be able to respond to his word. Let these verses bring you to a place of repentance, of accepting your sin and seeking the forgiveness of Christ. 
And if you are willing to do this this morning, Scripture offers great hope to you. The very hope that we sung about in the last song. Paul speaks about this hope in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here is the hope for you this morning. If you find yourself enslaved to this sin or any of the other ones mentioned, and such were some of you. So Paul writes to the church, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is where your hope lies this morning. It lies in Jesus, in the gospel. So Paul has shown us here how the unbeliever's idolatry leads to a giving over of them by God to their sinful desires. And these unchecked desires lead to a corruption of mankind's sexuality, specifically shown in the actions of homosexuality. Now Paul's descent into the sinfulness of mankind and its effects on mankind does not end with the corruption of man's desires. But he goes on to show how sin also corrupts man's mind. And we see this in 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So previously, Paul emphasized the effects of human sin, specifically idolatry, on the desires. But here he shows us how sin also corrupts the mind, which leads to sinful actions. This is what he says. He says, The corruption of the mind came to humanity for this reason, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. What does that mean? That phrase, that sentence is a little bit strange. What does it mean that they did not see fit to acknowledge God? Commentator and theologian John Murray explains well the wickedness of this lack of acknowledgement of God. This is what he says. He says, The thought is that they did not deem God fit to have in their knowledge. The godlessness of the state of mind is apparent they did not cherish the knowledge of God because they did not consider God worthy of such thought and attention. Think with me for a moment about how heinous and wicked that is. They didn't consider God worthy 
man, this finite creature who was formed from the dust of the ground by God, who was given life, life breathed into him by God, and who exists each moment by the sustaining power of God, looks at his creator and says, you're not even worth a thought. That's sheer and utter wickedness, is it not? You're not even worth a thought. How easy is it to think something? It's very easy. Not even worth that, God. At this point, Paul is specifically talking about the unbeliever's rejection of entertaining thoughts of God, but for a moment, I want to apply this to the believer. We must understand something, brothers and sisters, and what we must understand is this, that many of the sins that we struggled with and indulged in as unbelievers are the same sins that we often struggle with as Christians. So let me put the question to you who believe. Do you cherish the knowledge of God? Do you consider God worthy of your thoughts and attention? Were we to have a record of our thought life set before us, I think we would see the sobering reality of how little we entertain thoughts of God as his very own people. And not only this, but also how quick we are to replace thoughts of him with things of incomparably lower worth. Even some of us, when we come here to church on a Sunday morning and all our thoughts should be entertaining our thoughts of God, struggle with thoughts of other things. Are those things that fill your mind even close to comparing with the worth of God? They're not. Nothing is. Brothers and sisters, we have to realize that a lot more of that sin that we struggle with and indulge in as unbelievers lingers with us as Christians than we like to admit. We have to see that and recognize that and seek to kill that. To take every thought captive, as Paul says, and make it obedient to Christ. So back to the unbeliever, which is Paul's primary focus here. How does God respond when the unbeliever yells at him, you're not even worth a thought. How does God respond to that? He says, fine, have it your way. And just like he did in relation to the sinful desires of man, he pulls back and he gives them up to the sinful thoughts of their mind to a mind that does not acknowledge God in any way, shape, or form, to a mind devoid of thoughts of God. And the natural consequence from a mind that is devoid of the thoughts of God is the very list that Paul gives us. This is what the mind that has been given over 
to depravity conjures up. Let's read it again. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. There's not enough evil already. We got to invent some. Squeezed in the middle, which is often very striking to me in relation to what comes around it, disobedient to parents, children, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is what the mind that has been given over by God thinks about, conjures up. And acts on. This list makes abundantly clear that those who do not believe are in desperate need of the gift of righteousness promised in the gospel back in verse 17. Why is the gospel the power of God? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. That is the righteous gift that God gives to unrighteous people to make him right before them. Paul is seeking to demonstrate the unrighteousness of men so that when he talks about this gift of righteousness, they understand that they need it. Those of you here who do not believe, have you found yourself in this list? In order for the gospel to to make sense to you and to become sweet, you must first know how much you need it. And if you look at this list and see yourself in it, if you say, that's me, I'm a hater of God, I'm deceitful, I'm insolent, I'm haughty and boastful, I seek to invent evil, I'm a gossip, I'm malicious, I'm envious, I'm disobedient to my parents. If you find yourself in this list and you are broken by what you see, And there is great hope for you. Great hope for you. If you accept your sinfulness and seek the forgiveness of God, he will remove your unrighteousness and clothe you with the righteousness of his son. That's what the gospel promise is. Righteousness to those who are not. It is true this morning that if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, that there is great hope for you. But there is also great danger as well. If upon seeing this list, you seek to justify yourself and turn your nose up to these words, Paul shows you that you are in great danger. And he tells us this in verse 32. Though they know the unbeliever, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If you are here today as an unbeliever, you must pay very close attention to the first three words of this verse. They are the most important for you. Though 
they know. Though you know. Paul's point from verses 18 through 32 has been to prove that even if you have never read a single word from the Bible, that by nature you know that there is a God and that you have not lived up to His standard. That nature condemns you. But not only has nature condemned you this morning, but since you've now sat through a 35-minute sermon, the Word of God condemns you also. You have been given knowledge of what God's Word says. And the point is this, that you cannot leave this place and stand before the judgment seat of God and declare to Him, I didn't know. It's not going to fly. Because nature condemns you and now God's Word has condemned you. And the danger that you face is this. By walking away from here content in your sin, you make yourself liable to greater judgment. Scripture says over and over and over again that the greater knowledge one possesses, the more they are accountable for the knowledge that they have. Nature and God's word have testified against you so that you are without excuse. You have seen today that you are a sinner in desperate need of the grace of God. Do not harden your heart to the knowledge that you have been given. Use it. Turn to Christ and be set free from your sin. It's a very brutal reality, is it not? These verses are very sobering. Paul has demonstrated the devastating effects of unbelief on both the desires and mind of men, showing that mankind has been corrupted in every way. There's not a single part of man that has not been tainted with sin. And although Paul speaks about the unbeliever here, he also writes to the believer. And so it's fitting for us as we conclude to ask ourselves, what should we gather from this as Christians? Paul's speaking about the state of the unbeliever, and although I've made some applications to us as Christians, that's not his primary point. So how does Paul's audience, how does the believers he's writing to, how should we receive what he is saying? I think there are two primary things. The first is this. That we must realize the unbelieving world around us is in great need of the gift of righteousness given in the gospel. This is a current description of the unbelieving world around you. Of those people in your family, those people at school, those people at work that don't believe. This is true of them. And you see the danger that they are in. We must allow this to compel us to go to them with the gospel. With the truth of the gospel, it must, it must push us to mission. 
Not only that, as we look at this, we realize that we used to be right where they are. And somebody spoke the truth of the gospel to us, which is why we're here right now and not somewhere else indulging in our sin. I believe that as the Romans received this text, they would have been compelled to mission, seeing the devastating reality of the unbelieving world around them and how desperately they stood in need of the gospel. This is the first thing. The second is this, that we, as I've already said, were in this very same position. We as Christians were all of these things and still struggle with many of these things. We must remember what we have been saved from. And we must allow this to create within us greater worship and obedience to God. Brothers and sisters, distance from our conversion can be a difficult thing. If you have been a Christian for any amount of time, You see how in the beginning you were zealous and passionate for putting sin to death. But as you've grown and become more seasoned in your Christian life, it becomes more and more difficult. And and you seek to lose that understanding of how sinful you actually are. You see, the further we get away from our life before Christ, often the harder it is to recall the depth of our sin And when we lose sight of the depth of our sin, our love for Christ grows cold because we forget how desperately we need him, which consequently impacts the way that we live our lives and how faithfully we walk before him. But scripture, thankfully, is good at keeping both our past life of sin and our present struggle before our eyes to help us cherish grace to help us cherish Jesus, to look and see how horribly sinful we were and still are in many ways and how desperately we needed the grace of God and what the grace of God brought us from to where we are now. As Christians, we cannot conceive of that reality and think about it without loving affections welling up in our hearts for Christ. It's impossible when we see the depth of our sin and the spirit of God is truly within us, it will lead to greater love and affection for Jesus and a greater desire to walk in obedience to him. So brothers and sisters, what we must understand and realize from this text is that the world is in great need of the gospel and God has entrusted us with it to take it to them. Allow this to compel you to go. But also, see yourself and remember where you are in these verses and where you've come from. And allow that to help you cherish grace and to be empowered to follow Jesus more faithfully and to love him more wholeheartedly. Let's pray. Father, As I prayed at the beginning, I will pray again. We've heard your word. We have seen it. Help us to come underneath it. 
to allow it to judge us, to change us, to transform us, to motivate us, to empower us. Let us not in haughtiness and in boastfulness and in pride stand above it and seek to judge you by not submitting to what you've said here. Empower us by your spirit to go, realizing our mission and realizing and cherishing Jesus and the grace that he has bestowed upon us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.